0: Good morning. It is my hope that uh, as we go along here, you will be able to follow along in a scripture. You have those on your phone, no doubt, but that might be a little too distracting for some. You know how you end up clicking places and going places. So the church has some uh, Bibles in the back. If you'd like one, just turn around and say, Huh, where are they? And there are designated people ready to give them to you. And. if you would then turn in your Bibles to page 706, Matthew Matthew 23. So, again, good morning. The, um, the thing is about daylight savings time, I don't get it. I mean, I, honestly, I don't get it. I wrote Dean a question um, yesterday. He said, Daylight Savings Time, does this mean that I have an extra hour or I have to show up late? He said both. So I, I have no idea. I was raised in Arizona. We don't have Daylight Savings Time. So literally, I, I, I look at the clock and I say, does that mean I have no time for this or does that mean... I have an extra hour. I'm going with the hour part, okay? I'm going to go with the hour part. Um, need to say a couple other announcements. Go Rangers, right? That was a great, great game. Love that. I don't watch um, baseball except, you know, when the action starts to happen in October. And then I want to tell you, those of you who are um, members of this church and have been for quite some time, um, your, the previous rector, Brian Poppy, is a good friend of mine. We had coffee together this last week, uh, working on another project. And, um, of course, he asked about you. And we both touched the same verse at the same time when he was describing his love and sincere connection to this congregation. Um we touched the verse that was just read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, where Paul is sort of talking about how great it is to know the Thessalonians um, and to kind of brag about them to others. And uh, Brian and I both touched this word. Uh, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? The Thessalonians, or in this case, you. Um, You are our glory and hope. So um, there's that. Father in heaven, I, I pray that this message would come together in a way that would speak to your people. I know I have put in the time and the effort to dig into your word Help me, Lord, to speak it boldly and plainly in a way that your people here, gathered here, uh, would understand it, open their hearts to it, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, and then live our lives in accordance with it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I I thought I'd begin today by telling you how to do a make a sermon, how to write a sermon. This is sort of a DIY sermon workshop, okay? And what I'm going to tell you is so simple, uh, you could write it down, but you might actually be, be able to remember it. Because you never know when you might have to preach a sermon or lead a small group or open the Bible at your chair at your home and have a time of quietness. Do you ever wonder what to do? When you open the Bible and just read, is there a process you go through? And I, I want to give you the process I go through uh, simply when I write a message because it's very simple. And I feel a little guilty here because I'm like a magician giving away the secrets. Um, but hopefully I can continue to do this for a few more weeks. But I want to reveal to you a very simple process. Um, And it's based on this idea that the Bible's pretty clear in its teaching. That it doesn't take an academic degree. It doesn't take an expert in church history. That the Bible itself is clear and transparent. The truth emerges. With the help, of course, of the Holy Spirit, the truth emerges. And there's a word that emerged out of the Reformation that I love to say because it makes me sound very smart, and I never use it in any other capacity other than this. When we talk about the perspicuity of the Scripture, all right, the perspicuity, which I love, means the clarity of it. And this is a principle of the Reformation. All the leaders of the Reformation believed that they didn't need a pope. One didn't need a pope or a hierarchy or a magistrate to sort of make it clear. God didn't need these things to make the truth clear to his people. Tyndale, William Tyndale, the first one to translate the Bible wrote this, the scriptures are plain to understand and able to make any any man, any woman wise that readeth them and are also sure, so sure that he who follows cannot err. Scripture is plain and the simplest man may learn the truth thereby. So, Never be afraid to open up the Bible and ask these very simple questions. There are only three. And pretty much any message that you're going to hear from me or almost any other preacher is going to be in some way outlining the answer to these three questions. The first is this, of the text, what does it say? Okay. Now you may think that's kind of basic, well, and it is, but many other preachers would begin with something else, a current event or some an anecdote or whatever, but typically a sermon you want to begin with, what does the text say? Then you ask another question, and the way I phrase this is really important. You ask, what did it mean? Not what does it mean. We get to that. But what did it mean? Are you with me? What did it mean to the people who wrote it down? What did it mean to the people who heard it first or read it first? The problem a lot with American Christianity is that people jump from the text to the heart right away. And they think that the text was written for them, for their heart. God may use it for you, for sure. But I would just have to say that the idea is that the Bible's not written for you or for me. Or for us, we're basically looking at a document that God has used to speak to you and speak to me and speak to us, but what did it mean in its own context? And then the third question is then what does that mean for me? Those three questions. What does it say? The text. What did it mean when it was written? When it was read, when it was heard, and then thirdly, what does that mean for me? If you, if you want a, um, uh, a simple way to remember this, just think of text, context, subtext. Text, what the Scripture says, context, in its context, what did it mean? Subtext, what is it saying to me? Should be the subtext of my life based on this. Okay, so with that in mind, I want to go into Matthew chapter 23, page 706 in the Pew edition. If you have a device on, you can look at it however you like, but let's just look at the text. I'm gonna stop after the first sentence to kind of get the context. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. Now, that tells you something right away that the text really is something that meant for the disciples of Jesus and for crowds. Now, this is kind of a larger group, right? These are people that are hangers on, people who are following but not yet selected. These are Maybe 30, 40, 50, 100. We don't know. But what we are clear is that Jesus spoke to a large people, which means he was loud. You can't talk to a large, without amplification, you can't talk to a large group of people. And it's my contention, I'll show you this a little bit later on, that the Pharisees, while not mentioned, were listening in. So when Jesus spoke, he spoke to the crowds and to the disciples, and he's actually coming off speaking about the Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? Well, many of you would, would know this, but let me just remind you that the Pharisees were the legal purists of his day, The word itself means to stand out. They were the standout ones, the ones that were different, and they have been plaguing Jesus all his ministry, wherever he went, from the very first time in his ministry in Capernaum, to here at near the end of his life, the Pharisees have been always around. A dozen or more encounters with the Pharisees, always trying to trap him or have a gotcha question or catch him in the act of doing something that was impure or illegal from a religious perspective. You may remember, for example, one of the very first times that Jesus healed a man in Capernaum. He walks into the house, and uh, he's teaching, and the Pharisees are right there in the front row. Nobody can get in, and somebody opens up the roof in this thatched, roof environment, and lets down a paralyzed man on a stretcher right in front of Jesus. And the crowd hushes, and Jesus looks at the man like I'd look at you or like I'd look at you, and I, he, Jesus said, a man lying down because he couldn't move, and Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees go crazy. They lose their minds. And they jump right back at Jesus and says, you can't say that. You can't do that. The only one who can forgive is God alone. And Jesus looks at them and says, you know, glad you brought that up. Because let me show you the kind of power and authority that I have. And he said, so that quoting now, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, said to the man, get up, take your pallet, take your stretcher, and walk. And the man does it, and they lose their minds again. Here's a man who's not only forgiven sins, but he's known that uh, he's now known as one who has the authority to forgive sins, and they bug him. They stalk him, all his ministry. But the final straw for the Pharisees was the episode in John chapter 11 when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That was too much for them. And if you remember what happened, Jesus called out a really good friend of his, Lazarus, and people the bible says started following jesus started trusting him started knowing that this is the man where miracles through whom miracles took, uh, took place <laughs> and the pharisees called a meeting with the sanhedrin and said we got to get rid of this guy and a week or and a half two weeks later it's good friday and you probably didn't know this, but the Pharisees at the same time not only called a meeting with the Sanhedrin and said, we need to get Jesus arrested and we need to get rid of him, they actually put a contract out on Lazarus. Do you know that? They, put a con- they wanted to destroy the evidence. What kind of bad luck is that for Lazarus? He's dead once, he gets raised to life, and now he's got to hide for his life because everyone's after him. Why am I being so particular about this? Because I want you to know that the Pharisees were a constant irritant in the life of Jesus, and what Jesus is about to say will blow you away. What happens is that the Pharisees are gone from this episode, but they're not far away, and what Jesus says is, look, if you can look in your, in your uh, Bible on I think it's verse 2. Yeah. Jesus says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. And then he says something which it ought to make you scratch your head because he says, so practice and observe whatever they tell you. Not not what they do, for they preach but do not practice. But don't discount them. Don't discount what they say. Discount them. Do not discount what they say. They're on Moses' seat. Well, what does that mean? That goes all the way back into the time of Exodus when Moses is sitting in front of the children of Israel and he's deciding all their cases. And what does Moses do? He uses the law to decide the cases. He is an expert in the law. And Jesus says, now the Pharisees occupy that same position. And what you need to do, brothers, sisters, disciples, crowd, is you need to listen to them. They don't practice what they preach, but you should. That's the remarkable thing to me, is that Jesus is saying the Pharisees, God love them. Someone has to, but they don't practice what they preach. So you must do it. Pay attention to their words, not their works. They're hypocrites. They're playing a a role here. They themselves are lost. They're blind. They're broken. But the words that they speak to you are golden. I was remembering how I could communicate this to you, and I made up a little scenario in my mind. It's, it's semi-true, but not the bad parts aren't true, but the good parts are. When I was a, a kid ra- uh, raised in Nogales, Arizona, there was nothing to do in that town. It was just a drive-through town, town of about seven or 8,000 people when I was living there. And uh, about the same time, the movie American Graffiti came out. You remember what that was about, right? Just, just guys riding up and down the street, drag racing. Well, we got into it. We got into it. And um, I had a car, and it was quite easy on a Friday night just to ride up and down, pick up a couple of buddies, ride up and down, wave at people. And if you happen to be stopped at a stoplight with another car full of your friends or your not friends next to you, and the light was red. Remember in my town, we had one red light. And you went like this with the gas. You went, rum, rum. the car next to you would answer with, na, 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 and then it was on. And when that light would turn green, we'd just race off for, I don't know, a quarter mile or so, just get to the other side. And that was the thing. We did that all the time. Now, That part's true. What's not true is the scenario I'm going to tell you. What if when I went, the guy next to me was, and we both took off, and I get ticketed, and he goes on. And I go to the courthouse, and I stand before the judge, and I look up at the judge, and I realize it's this guy. The guy that I raced with is now on that side of the bench with a gavel in hand, and he smacks it down and says, you, you know, you're going to jail, you're fine. I have to do it, even though he is a hypocrite, even though he has violated his conscience and I know it, I have to practice what he preaches. That's the sense. I have to say that the Pharisees were like that. They they meant good. They really did. Philip Yancey writes about them, and he says, they cared deeply about their relationship with God, so much so that they dedicated their entire lives to cultivating a relationship. They believed in the supernatural, and and they glimpsed it in living color. To their credit, they took God seriously enough to avoid pronouncing, get this, to avoid pronouncing the divine name in case they might unwittingly take it in vain. They played safe with the Ten Commandments, establishing fences around it uh, to prevent even an unintentional breach. And they lived their life in public, willing to look foolish by wearing funny clothing and abstaining from foods and performing visible rituals And these very acts, this is what's ironic, these very acts of devotion blinded the Pharisees to the presence of the Messiah in their midst. And this is what Jesus points out going on with the text. Look what they do. They aggravate people. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. That is, it's like they're a personal trainer at the gym, right? And it's, they rack up way too much weight, and they put it on you, and then they walk away. And they could put their finger on it and just lift it up, but they don't do that. They just rack you up while themselves go away. They're they were incessantly competitive jesus says this they do all their deeds to be seen by others for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long and they love the honor to place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue so what's a phylactery well you've seen this for sure Even in modern Judaism, the ultra-Orthodox Jews have these boxes, and inside the box are scriptures, and they bind it in such a way that it is right here on their head. In observance of a passage in Deuteronomy that says, keep the word of God close to you in your head. And they literally put it on their head, and wrap it around their arm. They have prayer shawls in the ancient world, and even today, with long tassels. And there was this competition. Who had the biggest box? Who had the longest tassels? You think that's ridiculous, but it happens today. You're going to start seeing some things in the news about Muslims, particularly in Egypt. If you look at some of the photographs coming out of the Egyptian world of really intense religious Muslims, the men particularly only have a brown spot right here. You know what that is? It's a callus. It's a callus from worship or uh, praying five times a day and putting your head against the concrete floor, against the rug. It, over years and years of prayer, this has produced a callus. And today, when you travel there, it's a source of pride. In fact, there's a superstition that says in the life to come, this callus will be iridescent, it will light up. So it becomes even more important to build a big, big, heavy callus. You see this in the news. You think Christians have something like that too? Maybe not the box or the phylacteries or the tassels or the callus. I know pastors do. We called it, um, I won't tell you what we called it, but it was always about attendance and buildings and cash and money and all all those things that, you know, kind of position people around each other. These are holy people. And Jesus said, Yeah, this is what they do. Just accept the fact that that's what they do. And look, they seek admiration. They love the place of honor, the best seats, greetings in the marketplace, being called rabbi by others. They love all of that. The religiousness of their life actually blinded them to see Who the Messiah really was. What does Jesus say? He says, look, verse 8 and 9. And notice how the tone changes. They're not talking about the Pharisees anymore. They're talking about you. You are not to be called rabbis. And in my view, the Pharisees are within earshot. And they hear him say, but you are not to be called rabbi by others. You've got one teacher, and we're all brothers. And call no man father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have only one instructor who's the Christ. And then to the crowd and to you and I, you would say, and the greatest among you must be your servant. I brought this from my home just to show you a pomegranate. Very important in the Jewish house. To have pomegranates. This is, it's a symbol for them of the entire 613 laws of the Torah. What's the symbol? Well, the the idea is there's 613 seeds in a pomegranate. Now, there are sometimes, there aren't sometimes, but you get the idea. Symbolically, every pomegranate has 613 seeds. And the Pharisees were ones who took all of this and applied it to your life. As you needed, as you needed instruction, they would take one or two or 10 or 50 and load it up on you. And Jesus says, okay, discount them. Don't discount the need to do this. They don't practice what they preach. You practice what they preach. And I think that's the subtext. I think that's what this scripture is telling us, that we should listen very carefully to what the teaching of the scriptures are and apply it in our life, no matter where it comes from or who's the proclaimer or who you might look at and discount because of who they are, how old they are, what, 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 what their experience is, what their lifestyle is, listen to what they say and do it. So how does that apply specifically What's the subtext? And here's where I just want to have a heart-to-heart with you. I don't know you well, but I love you and the Lord, and I want to offer up a perspective on what's going on in the wide world today. I'm not a political preacher. I don't ever go that, but... I do think that in these days, we are in danger of a worldwide catastrophe. A broader escalation of the war seems inevitable to me. In my view, looking back on the entire time I've been alive, 68 years, um, this is the most dangerous time in my life. People use the word powder keg and flash fire and tinderbox, but we see evidence of it. We see race riots. We see open borders. We see two wars now in the world involving evil powers that are predicated on evil doing evil things. Thousands and thousands of souls have been killed already. And I think we see the fingerprints, obviously, of Russia. We see the fingerprints of Iran. And who knows? But it seems like there's evil forces that really want something bigger to happen than is happening now. And all this, frankly, is it doesn't seem to me like. And I'm, I don't, I don't want to pick a fight, but I just don't. It doesn't seem the leaders quite get it, and I certainly I can't get it at all. I'm not that an experienced person but it just scares me to death what we're facing. And I look at the principles of the teaching of Jesus, and I I want to say, Lord, what in here of this law should I be observing? Boil it down for me. Because these are very dangerous times, and I want to walk in faith and in fellowship with God. What do I do? And as I've been thinking this through, one of the scariest poems that I've ever read came to me um, by W.B. Yeats called The Second Coming. It's not about the second coming of Christ, but the coming of a second phase, a a second uh, dispensation, if you will, of history. And I just want to read it to you because it asks a question of Christians, particularly of me. What shall we do? Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand, the second coming. Hardly those words are out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi, the spirit of the age, troubles my sight. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with a lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs. While all about us, Uh, All about it, real shadows of the indignant desert birds and the darkness drops again. But now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. What do we do? The poem poses a frightening question. What do we do? If there is a new age upon us, if there's a new era that is coming, what do we do? We've heard the text. We look at the context. And I just submit to you, this is the subtext. that of all the 613 laws that are in the Torah, when Jesus was asked to summarize them and prioritize them and give us a picture of how we should live faithfully before God, here's what he said. There's actually not 613, but two. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we do. On these two commandments, representing all 613, on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is disturbing and it is comforting. As these days are disturbing, uh, disturbing, we seek comfort. Give us direction and hope. And I pray that my brothers and sisters would hear the clear message here, the subtext of our lives, to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, all our minds, with all our soul, with all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, that we would practice what is preached. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.